Welcome back to the program. In many ways, our college and university system in America grew out of our opposition to the old European model. Americans didn't want to be locked into specific training or apprenticeships. We believed that the goal of education was to engage in and confront the realities of the world. And so liberal arts education came to be. It emphasized writing and speaking and creative endeavors in the pursuit of interests beyond the classroom. Out of this came our great research universities and things like the California Master Plan for Education. Today, that process is about tests and admissions and loans and student aid and transfers and an insanely complex and arcane process that benefits the Sherpers that have to navigate us through it, but does little to add value to education. Just as technology has disrupted so much else, it is now reaching deep into higher education. What it means for college is an open question, which we are now coming to grips with. My guest, Kevin Carey, looks deeply into this moment in his new book, The End of College. Kevin Carey directs the Education Policy Program at the New American Foundation. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the New Republic, and the Washington Post. It is my pleasure to welcome Kevin Carey here to talk about The End of College, Creating the Future of Learning in the University of Everywhere, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here. When we talk about colleges today, it is such a broad landscape that we're talking about. I mean, certainly there are elite universities. There's the high-end state universities, the middle-tier colleges around the country that are struggling, and, of course, the community colleges, which have been getting a lot of attention lately. When we talk about it, talk a little bit about the differences there and how that really is part of how we have to address the future of college education. Yeah, I think that um, the California Master Plan that you talked about really has been the essential architecture of American higher education, at least since the middle part of the 20th century, um, where we created this three-tier system of open access community colleges on the bottom and elite research universities on the top and more practically oriented institutions in the middle. I think part of the problem is that um, we still only have one vision of what greatness in higher education is, and it's what the top looks like. Um, it's very much driven by prestige, by exclusivity, by expense, um, and it's very research-driven. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the educational experiences that students themselves get. Um, that combined with the ongoing public disinvestment in higher education, state governments not providing the same kind of subsidies that they used to, um, and and frankly, the unwillingness of colleges to adapt to modern times, both in terms of providing educational experiences that make sense for our never more diverse population, and a lack of willingness to think seriously about using information technology to really change and improve the way they operate, um, is leaving a lot of parents and students in a, in a difficult place. One of the things that you talk about early on in the book, really, is how we got to this place, how college became as expensive as it is now, and really how the model of scarcity has continued to drive this. Yes, I think um, colleges have been around a long, long time. The first Western college and university arguably was in the University of Bologna um, in 1088, I think is when it was started. Um, and all along, we've been designing colleges based on scarcity of educational resources. So the only way that you could really get a good college education was to go to a place where um, all the other students were and where the teachers were and where the books were. 
the printed the printed book was basically the best uh, education technology available since Gutenberg invented them 500 years ago. Because you could ever you could only only have so many places like that. It was expensive to buy all the books and put all the teachers and students together. There could only be so many colleges, and so we've gotten used to the idea that scholar colleges are scarce. Um, and then it makes sense for colleges to exclude many of the people who want to come there. We still, in many ways, rate colleges based on how many people they don't educate, which is very strange. Um, we don't live in that kind of world anymore. Um, information technology has made certain kinds of things, particularly information, abundant in, in ways that are different than all of human history. Um, you don't need to go to a place with a huge square building with stacks of books in order to have access to all of the books. You can connect using technology with people not just near you but all over the world you can form authentic learning communities and people are doing this already um, but the design of our colleges hasn't really caught up with that reality um, and i think it needs to and it will in many ways people tend to look at this as an either or situation for example you talk in the book about a course that you took at mit a biology course from a famous lecturer eric lander in fact, if MIT didn't exist in terms of its larger structure, would there be the ability to take this course even online at the zero incremental cost you were able to take it with? That, that in many ways we have to look at both sides of the equation. I think that's right. Um, uh, the class that I took is an introduction to genetics class. It is the same class that uh, MIT requires all of its freshmen to take. And in fact, when I took it, um, there were 100 MIT students in Cambridge, Massachusetts, watching the same lectures, doing the same problem sets and homework assignments, uh, taking the same midterms and finals as both myself and tens of thousands of other students from around the world um, in almost every country on earth, um, learning right along this, in the, the same class. Um, none of us had to pay anything because we weren't enrolled in MIT. That's pretty amazing. Um, it cost MIT maybe a few hundred thousand dollars to, to do that, to sort of tape all the lectures and really, and I want to emphasize, it wasn't just a matter of watching videos. We actually did a lot of schoolwork, um, homework, problem sets, laboratory assignments, using some very sophisticated um, online tools where you could, for example, um, manipulate a model of an entire strand of DNA to see what kind of mutations arise when you um, move little tiny pieces of it here and there. Um, th you know, that's the kind of experience that MIT students didn't even have available to them until five or ten years ago, and now anyone can have them. Um, so you do need places like MIT, but once you build these classes, they're there. Um, and you can update them, and the cost of expanding them, um, and certainly the cost of reaching many, many people on a per-student basis is not that large. But isn't it more than just building MIT? Were it not for the students at MIT that were paying $60,000 a year, there wouldn't necessarily be the opportunity for this course to be, be available free and online. That's true. Um, and I don't think that, you know, when I talk about the future of higher education and the University of Everywhere, I don't think MIT is going anywhere. I think there is still going to be, uh, there will still be our MITs and our Harvards and our UC campuses and um, many, perhaps, of the colleges that we have today that are these centers of learning and resources. But, of course, very, very few people ever get to go to MIT or Harvard or Berkeley or any places like that. Um, particularly if you think not just of American students, but students around the world. So these are small, expensive, exclusive places 
the both the challenge and the opportunity is to provide those educational resources to exponentially more people. And I think that is the future that we are kind of on the precipice of. And is there a business model yet for this future, a business model by which this can work in the online world? That's still being worked out as, you know, as lots of um, technology business models are being worked out. Um, in some ways, uh, Harvard and MIT, who run this edX consortium mm-hmm. where, that offered my class, and it's not just Harvard and MIT classes, but it's actually many, many other um, world-class universities, including Cal, um, are part of the consortium. Um, they don't need a business model. Harvard has $35 billion in the bank. Um, so, you know, Harvard and MIT kicked in, I think, $10 million each to start this thing. That is, that is peanuts for them. Um, people are always going to want to come to Cambridge to sort of be among the best and the brightest. And so um, they can just sort of run it either at a small loss or kind of at a break-even point. Now, we also have for-profit companies um, that are doing basically the same kind of thing. The way that they'll make money is on assessment. Because while it doesn't cost really anything to provide an online class to the, say, 100,000th person, it does cost money to legitimately read their essays or uh, grade some of their exams or um, assess them in a way that you can be sure that they are who they say they are. So one of the things that I think will have happen in the future is there will be some expensive college, some free college, and kind of a much less expensive in-between, where mostly what you're paying for is mentoring, um, assessments, and, and only, only, only the things that you really need. Doesn't this create even greater privilege at the top, an even greater imbalance with respect to those that still can afford to go to Harvard or MIT or what have you, that instead of maybe 10%, it, it literally does become a small portion of 1% that has that privilege and has that experience? Well, I, I don't think so, and here's why. We already have today and have always had a very, very imbalanced system. Only a small number of people have ever had access to our elite higher education institutions or anything that ever went on inside those ivy-colored walls. That's, that has been the reality. It's the reality now. Um, and uh, if we think about the size of the global population, uh, the fact that with the tremendous reduction in global poverty that's happened over the last 30 years, we now project that 3 billion people around the world are going to join the global middle class between now and 2030. We can't build millions of new Harvards for them. There's just there's not enough money in the world for that. These The institutions that we have are, the institutional model that we have is far too expensive. What we can do is use technology to both improve the quality of education and Um, provide things that used to be exclusive to everyone. So I almost see it in exactly the opposite way. One of the interesting things in in looking at this is how we view the value of colleges today. And this whole debate between learning as an end in itself and credentialing as another part of, of the process. Talk a little bit about that in the context of where you see us going with respect to higher education. That's, that's a really important distinction. Um, we know that the American economy has changed profoundly over the last 30 or 40 years. It used to be that you could get a middle-income job with just a high school diploma. Uh, we don't live in that world anymore. We haven't for some time. Um, and this is why people are so anxious about higher education, because they know that uh, if they want to give their kids a leg up in the world, they have to provide some way to help them get that college degree. And it's why colleges are able to charge so much money, because people don't really have any other choice. Um, 
But as you said, colleges don't just educate, they also credential. And it's the credential that really matters um, in the sense that uh, there are whole sectors of the economy that are just shut off to you if you don't have um, a certain kind of credential. And in fact, I believe that we're not really going to see change um, until we have a credentialing system that goes along with our growing system of open educational resources. So it's one thing for me to be able to um, finish an MIT genetics class online, but I already have a bachelor's degree. If I didn't have one, um, I might pay a lot more money for an inferior class just because it gives me credit. Um, so that's the next step, and, and I talk a lot in the book about how I think we can get there. Talk a little bit about that and what we have to do in order to get there and really how we have to change our mindset with respect to all of this. We've become very, very used to traditional college credentials in a way that we almost can't think of other ways to certify learning. Um, and the thing about college credentials is that they don't really say very much. Uh, your diploma literally only says the name of your institution and maybe what you majored in and how many years they, you were there. And I think that's very telling. We measure college learning in terms of time, not in terms of knowledge. So you get a two-year or a four-year degree. We talk about you need 120 credit, credit hours, uh, literally hours spent in class um, to get a credential. What we don't really say is anything about what people learned specifically in order to get those degrees. Uh, there's this fascinating thing now developing um, called the Open Badges Movement. It actually, uh, one of the big organizers is the Mozilla Foundation, which created the Firefox web browser. Um, so I think for them, step one was giving people access to knowledge um, through an open source um, free web browser. But now they want to give people more control over information about themselves. And so what they've created is essentially an open credentialing infrastructure um, that allows the creation of electronic certificates of knowledge and skill, where unlike a college credential, you can click on these things and it gives you a whole range of information about what the person who has these badges did to get it. Um, these badges are actually being used in traditional universities. UC Davis um, is using them right now, um, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, Michigan State. But also, and I think this is crucial, non-colleges. The Smithsonian is issuing badges, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, the Discovery Channel, Intel, you know, Intel Disney, Pixar. Um, we learn all throughout our lives. We gather uh, important knowledge in all kinds of different environments. It's very strange that only what we learn in college counts when it comes to getting a job, and I think that is going to change in the future. In many ways, it's enhancing the impact and, and the difference between credentialing and learning and allowing learning to take place for its own sake. In many ways, what people want out of liberal arts education. I think that's right. It's, you know, I'm a huge believer in the liberal arts. I think college isn't just about training you to get a job, although that's very important. It's also about um, allowing you to lead the good life. Um, to, it's about enlightenment. It's about our civic fabric. And frankly, very few students, I believe, ever get access to an authentic liberal arts education. I think a lot of colleges kind of nod toward those ideals, but don't really take that part of their job very seriously. And you also, you can't really get a good liberal arts education in only four years. You can um, prepare to go to grad school and maybe um, pick up enough skills to get into the workforce. But if you really take the ideals of liberal arts education seriously, um, about exposure to 
the greatest minds of human civilization about learning how to think in different ways and relate to different people, how to write and communicate. That is an ongoing project. Um, and I think that information technology can open people up to ongoing learning experiences that are really grounded in the liberal arts that don't, they don't end when you're 22. They go on for as long as, as you're willing to do the work. I want to talk about the other side of the spectrum, because if everybody can take through these massive online courses, the courses from MIT or Harvard or what have you, for minimal if no dollars, what impact does that have on the bottom tier of community colleges, for example? I think I actually think it's the middle tier that's going to struggle the most. Community colleges have, um, in some ways, they have certain advantages. They, good community colleges are very tied to local uh, job markets and employers, so they're providing very specific um, job-focused training um, that makes a lot of sense for exactly um, who and where they are. Um, good community colleges are also uh, not nearly as expensive, both from a cost structure standpoint and from a tuition standpoint, as some four-year universities. I think that the information technology revolution is actually going to get hit hardest, is going to hit hardest the colleges that are charging Harvard prices but not really providing a Harvard education. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, universities that are expensive, um, that people have to borrow a lot of money to go to, but aren't really adding any special value, don't send um, the kind of signals of exclusivity that getting into an elite university sends, um, if, uh, those are the ones that I think will be squeezed uh, going forward. One of the things that you hear constantly when this conversation comes up with respect to, to technology and creative destruction and higher education is the campus environment, the college experience, the cultural experience. In many ways, that is can be replicated within an urban environment. What about for those students that don't have access to that kind of urban environment that aren't in New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles or what have you? So I think that I think that that is really an important part of the college experience. And um, when I talk about the next generation going to the university of everywhere, I don't mean that they're all going to be sitting in their parents' basement in front of a computer. Um, nobody wants that for their kids. Um, I certainly don't want it for my daughter. I have a young daughter. Um, and absolutely, there's a level of socialization, a coming of age experience, a meeting different people from different backgrounds that is, along with the more formal education, an important part of the college environment. Um, unfortunately, that residential experience has become more and more expensive. And to your point, um, if you are far away from urban centers or centers of population, it can be difficult for you to experience that. I really believe that what we are headed for in the future is um, the creation of a lot of new organizations that provide both things at the same time, um, that do provide that level of socialization, uh, that do provide access face-to-face with other students and with other teachers, but don't have this hugely expensive, bureaucratic, physical, and educational infrastructure that a lot of colleges have accumulated over time. Um, they take advantage of all these resources that are now available because of information technology. And as such, they'll both be better educational environments and much less expensive and therefore more accessible to all kinds of people. One of the interesting things about this is how hard this ship is to, to begin to turn around because there are so many stakeholders, so many people with vested interests in it, 
within the university is and even in things like sports and, and these social areas that we're talking about, that even with with technology and creative destruction, there is such pushback and such resistance that we see. And that's really human nature. We see that not in education, but in all parts of human society. And our colleges are among our oldest institutions. They have deep roots. They have settled into their foundations. Um, They want to be what they are and always have been. The people who work there are very comfortable with the particular uh, professional incentives and and all the rest of it. but the story of human progress is the story of old organizations being challenged by new organizations, um, of innovation, of technology allowing us to provide more prosperity to more people. And colleges are not or should not be immune to that dynamic. And um, I think that they need to prepare themselves for, uh, for change. Um, not kind of change that's just completely exposed to the uh, ravages of the free market. I don't endorse that at all. I'm a big believer in, in taxpayer and public support for higher education. Um, I think students learn best most of the time in a nonprofit institution that really is grounded in public values. But these institutions also have to modernize. They can't continue to become more and more expensive, and they can't just say no to change when change is what we need the other side of it, or another part of that, is something that we're seeing with respect to state universities right now, where because of this change, it is giving state governments an excuse, a reason, to pull limited financial resources out of these universities. And it's interesting to see the consequence that's having and how universities, state universities are responding to that. So I, I don't believe that, I mean, the problem of state disinvestment in higher education is a real one. Um, it, it, absolutely. It, it, but it has also been a problem for going on 30 years now, well before any of, this, um, any of these technological possibilities were out there. You can go all the way really back to the early 1980s, um, and in every recession since then, states have reduced the amount of money that they spend on higher education, particularly relative to other things states spend money on. Part of this is, frankly, because healthcare is a lot more expensive, and we decided to build uh, zillions of prisons and fill them with prisoners and prison guards, and we have to pay for all those things, and there's not as much money left over for our universities. It's partly because of an anti-tax ideology that it reigns in a lot of states where governments just aren't willing to raise the revenue necessary to support higher education. That all happened before um, the possibilities of information technology were out there, and I think mostly it's a function of people being against government, um, uh, and I think that that's a, a problem in our body politic that, that people need to come together to change. It doesn't mean, however, that we shouldn't have a higher expectations for our colleges and universities and ask them to um, build on their knowledge and their values, but to do new things in new ways, given what technology makes possible. Given that, what role does government and public policy have in helping usher in this new framework? Well, first and foremost, college has to be remain affordable um, both to low-income people and the middle class. Um, and we do that both by investing in strong public institutions and providing flexible systems of financial aid. Um, what the government can also do is create spaces for new organizations um, to exist. So one of the sort of problems in the college market right now is that in order to be a college, you have to be accredited. In order to be accredited, you have to be approved by an an accreditation organization that is run by all of the existing colleges. And basically, to be accredited, you have to show that you 
um, have organized yourself in the same way that all the old colleges are organized. Well, I think, I mean, that's a, an obvious kind of barrier to innovation. It's sort of letting the fox guard the hen house in a way. Um, it doesn't leave a lot of space for new organizational models. It doesn't leave a lot of space for innovation. Um, and I know innovation can be a buzzword, and I know it's not a cure-all, but we need more innovation in higher education. Authentically, we do. Um, so one thing the government can do is carefully, and I do mean this because there are ways to exploit this that we've actually seen in the for-profit sector over the last 10 years, um, carefully make public money available to innovative new higher education organizations that are willing to be held accountable for how much students learn and how well that money is spent, uh, but may organize themselves in ways that are unfamiliar to traditional higher education organizations. Talk a little bit about the cost of all of this, the cost of this transition. You touched, We touched on the business models being in process at the moment. How do you see this playing out? How do we get from here to there? I think that we can rely on technology to continue to improve. Um, think about what the world was like 15 years ago and what we had available to us and, think, and how much it's changed. I think that piece of change is only going to accelerate in the future. We're, we're really very early on living in a society where most of us are interconnected, where the cost of moving and storing and processing information is, has fallen almost to zero in a lot of ways. Um, and our application of those tools always lags behind. And then our, our um, public policy environment always lags behind that. Um, so it's an exciting time. It's a time of experimentation. Um, if I knew exactly what the business model was going to be, I would give up writing books for a living <laughs> and go create one of those things, but I'm not that smart. Um, but other people are. I mean, there are other people who are sort of very good at this, and we do have you know, very highly functioning capital markets that put um, money and innovation together. Um, and so uh, I think it will be, in the end, a, a complicated blend of um, educational resources that are free and open to everyone, um, and then particular kind of educational services and new organizations um, that do cost money to provide and that therefore people will have to pay for, but in combination aren't nearly as expensive as the, golly, like $60,000 a year that some private colleges are charging now. And finally, something you touched on briefly earlier, the global impact of all of this, because it really does change the global landscape in terms of higher education. That, I think, is changing more quickly than anything else, and I think it's actually very likely that probably the cutting edge will not be in the United States mm -hmm. because um, we know that, I mean, really the, the, most, the biggest story in, on planet Earth over the last 40 years has been the reduction in global poverty. In 1980, 50-some percent of all people on Earth were poor in the sense that they lived on less than $1.25 a day. That number has actually been reduced to closer to 20%, even as the population has expanded to 7 billion people. Um, it's an amazing achievement, obviously a lot of work to be done, but what it means is uh, between now and 2030, the number of people in the global middle class is going to grow by about 3 billion. That's more people that have ever been to college in the history of humankind. Um, and the first thing that you do, um, the first thing that you want for your children once you have, can move them out of poverty is education. You can give them food, healthcare, safety, a roof over their head. Education is opportunity. We are not going to educate 3 billion people by building millions of additional American-style universities that cost like a billion a pop just to kind of construct from the ground up. 
we we couldn't we can barely afford that system here in the United States. We're certainly not going to build it in India and China and Indonesia and Africa and South America and all the places where this global um, middle class is growing. A lot of that growth is going to happen online or a combination of online and lower cost local institutions. I think that's wonderful. I think that's a boon to humankind. Um, I think America should be at the forefront of providing that opportunity purely from a moral and humanitarian perspective. Kevin Carey, his book is The End of College, Creating the Future of Learning in the University of Everywhere. Kevin, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 